The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. So today we're continuing, or this evening, we're continuing our study in 1 Corinthians. Um, Chase led us through the first uh, chapter the last two weeks, and uh, now we're moving into chapter 2. Uh, so if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that'd be great. Um, if you think about way back in 1991, I don't know what you were doing then. Some of you were not even thought about by then. But if you were around in 1991, I was a senior in high school. I know I, I don't look a day over 21, but I was a senior in high school in 91. And middle of my senior year, 17-year-old guy uh, on a mission trip to New York City. And uh, we had gone on a, a bunch of trips. We're growing up in Philadelphia. We're not that far away, right down the road. And so uh, we had some great leaders that would take us up, and we would go preach on the streets and in the subways in New York City at Christmas time. And it was a little crazy. Of course, if you've ever been to New York City around Christmas, it's a little nuts. Uh, not only nuts because it's New York City, but just all the tourists and just all the stuff going on. And so it was a little intimidating. We think about the foolishness of the gospel we've talked about the last two weeks. This is one of the things that comes to my mind first when I think about that. So we're uh, doing different things to uh, present the gospel in a way that's engaging to an audience that are strangers. And so one of the things we would do is uh, bring a paint board with us. And I don't know if anybody's ever seen something like this, but it's basically on a dolly. It folds up and you drag it around. You can pull it onto the subway and hop off of the street and hop up and here you are, you unload your stuff and set up this paint board. It's kind of like a, a mobile easel. And you got some paints and they would train us to present the gospel in a certain way. And uh, so that day, it was getting a little bit warmer out. Usually when it was Christmas time around in December, we would stay down on the subway platforms because it was warmer down there. But this particular day was a little bit cool, uh, a little bit warmer uh, up, up on the streets. So that uh, Tony, one of our leaders, he asked me, he said, hey, Tim, you want to uh, handle this last one before we go back to where we're staying? I said, sure, we'll knock it out. And so I proceed to paint the God-man story. If anybody's ever seen that story, we still do it at Impact. Uh, we have God up top, man at the bottom. You got the cross as your way to a relationship with the Father. So I'm painting away, going to town about halfway through. Here I am painting on the paintboard, and I feel something smashing in the back of my leg. And I look down, and I'm like, what in the world is going on? It just hit me, almost knocked me over. And I look down, and it's a police officer laying on the ground just smashed my legs. He actually looked like, for those that are old like me, he looked like the cop from Family Matters, like way back in the day, you young ones, you can Google that, but uh, that's what he looked like, for real. I thought it was the dude straight from the show. So he hit me in the back of the legs, and then I immediately look up, because I heard some commotion, look down the street, and there's a guy, it's like something out of a cartoon or a movie, for real. He is running down the street with bags in his hand like bags about this big, right? And he's booking down the street and he's got five or six cops chasing him. And this uh, one real fast cop caught up to him, tackles him, throws him in the back of the cop car, and then comes back. The same guy that caught him came back to check on us to see if we were okay. And I'm like, well, I'm gonna sue the city. You know, this guy, cop was running. He needs to get in better shape. But uh, I didn't say that. I was just thankful he came to check on us, right? 
And we're talking and about uh, what we're doing out there. Why in the world do I have a paintbrush in my hand on the street? And uh, so we got to talk about the gospel. He's talking about his grandma who raised him and, and just shared her faith with him. And so it was a really cool experience. And on top of that, I forgot to finish the story. Uh, the guy had robbed a McDonald's right around the corner. And he was running with bags of money. It's like, you imagine like a cartoon with a big dollar sign and he's just booking down the street in these white bags of money. Uh, that's how I picture it anyway. Uh, but they caught him and we were fine. But when I think about that experience and many others that I've had in this city sharing the gospel, I think about foolishness. I think about how ridiculous I must have looked and my friends looked standing in a subway, sharing the gospel with most of the people that didn't really want to hear it, throwing things at us, <laughs> cursing at us, different things that they would say. I discovered a lot of words uh, growing up in a pastor's home. I didn't hear much, but in the subway, I, I had a great education. But the reality is that it really felt foolish. And the fact is, 1 Corinthians helps us understand back in chapter 1 and in chapter 2 that it is foolish. But in the world's eyes, the gospel message is a foolish message. So first of all, we're going to look at tonight the power behind Paul's preaching. So look at verse 1 to 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling and my speech and my message was not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. These verses are amazing to think about and consider that Paul is trying to express to the church at Corinth, hey, there's nothing attractive about this. There's a lot of churches out there that kind of ride the line and they're not quite sure where to go. And even for us at TBC, we're not sure how far to go when it comes to being attractive to people that come. You know, there's a wide range. Well, it's attractive for some and some hate what they think is attractive. So it's a very tough battle that you try to, to face sometimes and even to think about. There's so many churches out there just trying to be attractive. How can I attract young people? How can I attract this crowd or that crowd? And the reality is Paul is saying, look, I'm not coming with eloquent words. There's nothing really attractive about the message. It's a simple message. But the plain message of the gospel, ignited by the power of the Spirit, makes it not so plain anymore. The simple message of the gospel, when it's enlightened by the Spirit, becomes power, becomes life, becomes eternity. And so it's an amazing thing. And he mentions Christ crucified here in these verses. As Chase helped us understand last week, the reality of a crucified king isn't really attractive for a lot of religions. It's not really something that you really want to say too loud. Well, the one we believe in died, you know. He's not here anymore. He was overtaken by the Romans and put on a cross. It's not really an attractive thing, but... This is the message. As Paul led up to his trip to Corinth, you have to understand his words here in the first five verses about fear and about trembling and trepidation and those type of words you might use to, to say what he was feeling. 
are words that express what he's feeling. One of the reasons why is because he experienced a lot of difficulty leading up to this trip, all the way back to Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. He was pretty shaken. Threats for his life, threats in jail, uh, being just persecuted, all these different things uh, based on what God had called him to do. And so here he is coming into Corinth, this great city, this powerful city, this city with people who are really wise in the world's eyes and they have a lot of knowledge and they, they have a lot of education and here's Paul coming in with this foolish message. So he comes in a little bit, you know, taken back a little, he says, weakness, fear, trembling. In addition to that, you have to consider Paul's physical appearance. Now, the Bible doesn't really say a lot about that, but if you look in history, there's a, a writing, the second century work of Acts of Paul and Thecla, it describes Paul this way. A man of small stature with a bald head and crooked legs, in a good state of body with eyebrows meeting and nose slightly hooked. <laughs> what a description. Imagine that being the description of you. <laughs> you know, here it is in this historical writing, but here's Paul. Sometimes we imagine Paul, the, the writer over half the New Testament, as this boisterous, big, strong guy that was intimidating. But the reality is, on top of all this fear and trepidation from these other cities, Paul wasn't really imposing. He's a bald head, crooked-legged, unibrow, hook-nosed preacher. That's what he was. And here he is proclaiming the gospel and thousands upon thousands of people come to know Jesus as a result of the gospel being spread through his work. So here's some questions for you. Do you get a sick feeling when thinking about sharing your faith? Do you find yourself inadequate? Are you nervous about what people might think? Do you think, I'm sure they've heard this before or I'm not qualified or I don't want to ruin a friendship or this stuff is too personal. I don't want to get into that. Maybe I don't want to beat them over the head with a Bible. If you struggle with these thoughts, well, I want to welcome you to Paul's proclamation of the gospel club. Because here it is. Paul lays it out here. And he's honest and open and really just graphic in his feelings about what he's been called to do. And maybe you felt that same way. I know I have, especially getting on the street in New York City. <laughs> Talk about a knot in your stomach. But we're all called to share the gospel in different ways. And then we got verse five in the last part of this section where it seems to go back to the end of chapter one, just reminding us where our hope and our boast should come from, which is the power of God, not the wisdom of men. Douglas Wilson puts it this way. He says, a faith that depends on clever reasoning may be demolished by a more acute argument. But the faith that is produced by the power of God can never be overthrown. You've got a lot of people talking, a lot of people arguing, a lot of people have some really great opinions and, and things based on facts and things that they believe in. And so there's a lot of people out there smarter than I am. I guarantee you that. A lot of you in this room are smarter than I am. But the fact is, you can't argue me out of my faith. I base my faith on the scripture. I base my faith on what the spirit has done in my life. 
And there's no arguing me out of it. You young people, you college students, you'll experience this. Even going to a Christian university, you'll experience this if you haven't yet. It's a reality. There's a lot of arguments out there that will sound good or sound kind of to sway you one way, but the reality is if your foundation is on the word of God, there's nobody swaying you. There's nobody changing you. This is your faith, your faith in God based on his word. And then moving into the next section, we've seen the power behind Paul's preaching, but the next rest of this chapter, we're gonna look at the message revealed. And we can understand first that it's not by human wisdom if we look at verse six. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. So if we look back in verse six, we see the word mature used. So for some of you, you may be thinking like, well, that's just a level of um, maturity, meaning that you're growing up. And like for me, (laughs) I have a hard time with this. I'm 46 years old, but I still love junior high kids and I'm the junior high pastor, been here for 14 years and I still love it. And one of the reasons why I still love it is I am somewhat immature, which you'll see a little bit later in the sermon, but I'm just, uh, that's the way I think. I'll probably think that way till the day I die, but we're not talking about that type of maturity. The maturity here he's saying, he's talking about is basically it's just people who know Jesus, and people who aren't. That's really the the dividing factor here in this passage. It's just saying that these are people who have come to know Jesus and people who don't know Christ as their savior. And then you look at verse seven and eight, he gets into this interesting description, secret and hidden wisdom of God. That's kind of interesting to see something like that and hear it described and, and kind of fascinates me a little bit when I hear about this secret wisdom. Well, how can I get it and, and what's all about? And it kind of reminds me of the power of Daniel. If you remember the story of Daniel and his buddies back in Babylon where they were taken into captivity and they were told to eat what the king was offering and it was food that was offered to idols. And so they decided, they determined in their heart not to be defiled by the, the king's meat. And they said, no, we're going to eat veggies and water. Some of you vegetarians out there, yes, absolutely, veggies and water. Well, the veggies and water turned out to give them more wisdom and more strength than their meat-eating counterparts. And so uh, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing, but this secret wisdom, they were given more wisdom than their counterparts and were able to give better understanding to those in charge when they were brought in because of this secret wisdom, the power of God in their lives. It kind of goes with this statement because Paul is contrasting here the highly touted wisdom of Corinth versus the wisdom that is being called foolish that comes from an encounter with Jesus. So here's Paul. He's saying, here's what wisdom looks like to the world. Popular, educated, you know, people that are really successful versus, you know, crooked leg Paul walking in here, you know, saying, Hey, here's the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ who died, was buried, and rose again three days later. It's an interesting contrast, and it's this secret wisdom. 
It makes me think of like something like a puzzle. I read about this in a commentary recently this week and kind of compared it to a puzzle. A lot of us look at secret wisdom from God and, and what God has for us as a puzzle. And uh, during quarantine, one of my daughters, she got into a few puzzles and had them laid out. And she, she knocked out a few and I helped her out a little bit. But her and I have the same type of personality, which is kind of ADD, and so it's not good for puzzle producing. And so uh, we, got, we got over a few easy ones. Now, they weren't like the three-year-old ones, you know, with like 10 pieces, but they weren't like the, the, the 2,000 or whatever, the 1,015. I don't know what you guys are into, but it wasn't that difficult. But then someone gave us a puzzle that was like, a little bit of, uh, above our uh, a level, especially attention level. And so we're trying to get after this thing and we're both like getting a headache looking at this. And so it's kind of that picture, this wisdom, this secret wisdom of God. We, sometimes we think, well, it's just a puzzle. We got to figure it out and we can figure it out and kind of put this piece over here, get this argument going over here and get this piece of information. Then we'll have it all set. But this guy who wrote this commentary concerning this and concerning this book, but specifically 1 Corinthians 2, Leon Morris, he corrects this way of thinking and he says, secret does not mean a puzzle we find difficult to solve. It is a secret we are wholly unable to penetrate. So it's an impossible puzzle. It's like that puzzle that falls and somehow that piece that disappears on you, right? And you get all the way to the end and you're like, where is it? And you can't find it. And this is that secret wisdom because apart from the spirit, apart from being drawn by the spirit to the gospel, you're like looking at a puzzle that isn't solvable. It's not something you can work out on your own. It's not something you can figure out. So Paul, he gives a defense before King Agrippa in Acts 26. He's standing before the king and talking about his conversion. He's explaining the purpose that God gave him after his miraculous conversion. And in Acts 26, 18, the Lord gives him this commission. He says to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You see, apart from Christ, apart from the Spirit drawing us, we are in darkness. We are literally in darkness. We cannot comprehend the things of God. We can't understand why Jesus would come and be a suffering king and what the world would call a failure. It's impossible for us to grasp that. But when we're enlightened by the Spirit and when we go from darkness to light, we see it in a whole new way. And we see it for what it is, which is an amazing story. And then verse 9 gives a loose quotation of Isaiah 64, 4. No eye has seen, ear heard, the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Makes me think of those who have gone before us, those who have passed away, like Pastor Gary or my mother-in-law or other faithful servants who are experiencing amazing things at the feet of Jesus. No eye has seen, no ear has heard. When he talks about the heart, he actually is referring to not just what pumps blood throughout our body, but he's talking about the whole of the inner life, including thought, will, and emotions. It's what happens to us as we walk with Christ. It's not an accident. Think about this. He talks about that it was before the ages for our glory, that God 
prepared this story and the fact that we get to be part of it and including us in the story before time began. That before the ages, TBC would be here. That you'd be sitting here wearing masks on a Sunday night in September. That God prepared this before the ages. What a powerful story to be a part of. We also look at verse 10 to 13 and we see the gospel is spirit-powered. It says, these things God has revealed to us through the spirit, for the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one, can, uh, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have re- received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. You think he's emphasizing the Spirit at all here? Spiritual, spirit, you see it all over this passage. First of all, he wants us to understand in this section the fact that the gospel it revealed to us by the spirit, it strips away any and all superiority you might feel. What happens to many of us when we come to Christ is we get this feeling of, of uh, security. We, we understand that Jesus died for me. We, we have this, this love and, and care in our lives that we've never had before. And so we start to respond in a way that's actually uh, sinful. It's kind of ironic. But we start to get prideful. And we look down on others who are doing things that we used to do, but we don't do anymore. And we kind of look down on them and feel superior because we have the secret wisdom, right? We have this great message. We have this great savior. But the spirit wasn't designed to give us any superiority. It's actually the opposite. It strips away our superiority. It helps us live like Jesus in Philippians 2, who talks about, uh, Paul talks about there, Jesus, who who was able to claim deity. He claimed deity, but he was able to be a king and to be able to have people serve him, but instead he took upon him the form of a servant and became obedient even unto death, even death on a cross. And that's what the Spirit's work does in our lives. It makes us humble. Verse 10 and 11 talks about the depths of God. It shows an emphasis on the unattainable nature of who God is apart from the Spirit. Paul explains this further in Romans 11, 33. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. Verse 12 is kind of repetitive from chapter one and the first part of two. In case you missed it, It's not words taught by the spirit of the world or human wisdom. It's from the spirit of God. And in verse 13 is pretty powerful. He talks about the spirit, his role as a teacher. The spirit's role as a teacher. Paul explains this role in helping us understand spiritual truths, but also Jesus helps us understand this in Matthew 14, 26. He says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. 
So you see in this passage and Jesus speaking and in other passages that Paul's written that he describes the spirit as a teacher. For you young people, it's important for us to understand. I know for my kids, especially my girls right now in middle school and high school, sometimes I'm like, hey, you've been reading the word and one of my daughters would be like, well, it's hard to understand. Like I try to read it, but I just can't quite get it. And I try to remind her, look, what you're called to do is open the word. And you start reading and make that a habit in your life and develop that habit of daily time in the Word. Some days will be tougher than others. But you develop that habit. The Spirit promises. God promises that the Spirit will teach you and will be a helper and will show you things where you literally have a teacher at your disposal every day as you read the Word. And it's such a blessing to think about that we have the Spirit on hand, ready to teach us whenever we open the Word, whenever we're sharing the gospel, even while you're talking about the gospel, you're taught about who God is through the Spirit's power. And lastly tonight, as we wrap it up in verse 14 to 16, we can see that this gospel gives us a discerning spirit. You know, unfortunately in my own life and maybe in your, your life as well, the role of the Spirit is highly diminished in our thoughts and actions and emotions often. I don't know about you, but oftentimes it seems like in my life, uh, God the Father and Jesus are like the two sons that never left home, and, and the Holy Spirit is like the son that left and moved to like California and only comes back a few times a year. That's how I picture it. Because it's like, we got the Father, we got the Son with us at all times, but the Spirit is kind of weird and, and, and it's kind of strange and it's kind of like mystical. And so we leave, he's over there, and I don't know why I picked California, but that's what I picked. So we kind of see it that way, and the Spirit really doesn't influence our lives, and we don't really interact with the Spirit on, on a daily basis, and it's really more just us interacting more with Jesus and God because the Spirit is kind of unknowable in a way to us. But Paul is trying to help us understand, look, the Spirit is called to have a relationship with us, to teach us, to be with us throughout the day. And so I call you as well as God called me this week to really consider maybe changing your thoughts about the Spirit and maybe interact with the Spirit throughout the day and let the Spirit guide you more as you read His Word. In this section, Paul begins by reminding us that the non-believer literally is not capable of understanding and accepting the things of the Spirit. Let's read those verses. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So thinking about this spiritual battle and what God, what the non-believer is able to grasp versus what the believer can grasp. In my life, this past week, I've been reminded of that and kind of pushed a little bit by the Spirit himself concerning this, and it was brought on by a statement, a message that my cousin sent me. And he sees my posts on Facebook, and he sees some different things, and he didn't do it in a way that many of us do, which is passive-aggressive comment thread, you know, that type of thing, you know, the Facebook warrior or the Instagram Twitter warrior, you know. But he actually did it in a nice, 
message. It was a private message. And he just said, hey, Tim, what are you looking to see? What kind of change do you want to see here? And it made me really think about what I was considering. It made me think about the fact that oftentimes I, I look for things in people that don't know God just like I look for actions in them like I would look for in myself. But the reality is what Paul is describing here at the end of this chapter is it's incapable of happening. It's not possible. And so uh, maybe I can explain it a little bit better through a story. A few weeks ago, uh, my family and I went to Tennessee to meet the rest of my crazy family. It was 14 grandkids and nine adults in this big house in the Smoky Mountains. It was totally uh, COVID approved, uh, not really, but it was, it was interesting. Uh, but we're in this, this house just having a blast. We get together, it's loud, everybody's talking over each other. It's just your typical situation from people growing up in the Northeast that are just obnoxious. And uh, so we all get together, we're just hanging out. And whenever my sister comes around and we have a gathering, she is the one who makes the amazing desserts. To the point that she actually has her own company now. It's a kind of a side project of hers, and it's called Love and Butter. What an amazing name for a dessert company, and it is all good. And so she brings it. We all just basically wiped it out on the first day, probably, you know, as we're all just hoarding around the, the table, you know. And so she comes with that type of, uh, type of production when it comes to the sugary treats. But in what she excels in in the sugary treats, I would say she equally and oppositely fails in in her drink game. I didn't say drinking games. I said her drink game. And what she brings with her is some of this stuff that actually, I think, Mark, did you take the can off the stage? What did you do? Did you, what's up? Oh, he put it right here. He told me he was drinking this before. Look, it's even half full still. You don't like this stuff. So here's the deal. She brings this stuff, expecting people to drink it, like a whole case of it. And some of you out there are like, I like that stuff. Give me a break. Seriously. This stuff. And I'm sorry, Bowers family. I'm offending you right now. But uh, the reality is I had some of this stuff. And when I drank it, someone told me, and, and I have to laugh whenever anybody says this to me. It's an acquired taste. It's like, if I need to acquire a taste for something, I'm going to dump it down the toilet, right? As a matter of fact, when I drank that stuff, I really was like, I might as well just drink dumpster juice. That's how, that's how poorly I think about LaCroix. And I know I'm going to receive a few emails and probably LaCroix on my desk this week. But uh, that's how I felt about it. It's a really strong opinion, I know, I'm sorry, but it just, it is. But where am I going with this, you might ask. Um, in my weird way of thinking, that's how I kind of picture what I expect from non-believers sometimes and what I actually get. So what I see in a lot of ways is this, it's kind of like I want them, non-believers, to love sacrificially, to seek, cease gossiping, to not be violent, to pursue justice. It's kind of like opening a can of LaCroix and expecting Dr. Pepper or sweet tea. That's how I picture it. So I'm looking for something from people that it's impossible for them to give. 
And it's my fault as a believer for even expecting that. But yet I hold them to this standard and I look at them in a certain way and again, I feel this superiority when in reality, I should be repenting and confessing. And maybe you can take that analogy the opposite way. How about you? You profess to be a Dr. Pepper can or a big cup of McAllister's sweet tea. And then when someone gets around you or experiences you or gets your comments on social media, all of a sudden they're like, ooh, you're LaCroix, right? I thought you were Dr. Pepper. But here you are, bitter seltzer water. And you're supposed to be a light. You're supposed to be a sweet aroma for Christ. And yet what the world sees of you is anything but that. So we're challenged in this way to think about how we view the non-believer, but maybe we can reverse it on ourselves and think about how the non-believer might see us and be convicted, as I was this week. Verse 15, it's interesting. He talks about judging. Over my 20-plus years of ministry, I've heard a lot of people claiming Christ, stating something to the effect of, you can't judge me. That's an interesting statement because if you're a believer and I'm a believer and we're in community together, guess what? I am actually called to judge you. <laughs> I'm called to actually call you out when I see things in your life that aren't in line with what the word says and what the gospel says. But this passage, is, verse 15, is interesting where the reality is he's saying that non-Christians can't judge a spiritual person on spiritual things is what he's trying to say. So don't get that out of context and start telling people they can't judge you, especially if you're a believer. Because the reality is what he's saying is that non-spiritual people, people that don't know Jesus, don't have the ability. Remember we said they can't understand the full gospel. They can't understand this secret wisdom. So for them to be able to judge a believer is difficult. So Paul is saying that Christians cannot be spiritually judged by non-Christians because they don't know spiritual things. And then the last verse, 16. Paul again quotes Isaiah from chapter 40, verse 13. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Paul shows that because we have the Spirit, we have both the mind of Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, and we have the mind of Christ. Now I said this this morning and I'm gonna say it this evening that should get some kind of shout through the mask. I know that it's muffled, but hearing that and reading the fact that you have access to the mind of God and the mind of Christ, the Savior of the world, should blow your mind. It should make you want to shout the idea that you, this evil, wicked sinner, who often fails, or me, this evil, wicked sinner who often fails, has the opportunity to know the Savior, to know the creator of the universe. We have this opportunity, and it's such an amazing thing. We have this mind of Christ, so having the mind of Christ should change us into grace-giving, patient, understanding Christians, who display Jesus in our actions, and when we don't, are quick to beg forgiveness and set things right. 
That's what the mind of Christ should do in us. That's what the spirit work should do in us. So that when we fail and when we say things that are, are just off or when we attack somebody, whether it's through our phone or in person and we kind of rip them because we believe differently or in this pandemic, we all have opinions on what should go on and what shouldn't go on and we somehow are all experts on it. And then when we go ahead and rip them, especially those who are non-believers or believers alike, the fact that we take that out on somebody else who we should be patient with and loving with and gracious toward, that's not the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is something that transforms us. The Holy Spirit's power transforms us into people who are a sweet aroma to those we're around who are attractional not because of the way they look or what they talk about or how they say things, but they're attractional because of their love that's sacrificial. And that's what we're all called to. And maybe you're sitting here tonight or maybe watching online. You don't know Jesus. Maybe you haven't experienced the Spirit's power and you, you haven't figured out this puzzle or this secret wisdom and you want to know. The Holy Spirit can show you this tonight. And you can have new life. That's my desire for you. And I know the desire of this church is to see us grow in community and see more people embrace who we're called to be. Let's pray. Dear God, we're so thankful for your word. Thankful for the challenges it gives. Sometimes it's, it's not fun to go through things that confront us for what we are and who we've become. But God, your spirit guides us into a walk that is deeper than we could ever know. Lord, we sit before you thankful that we get to know you, that we get to have the mind of Christ, that we get to be taught by the Holy Spirit. Lord, what an amazing thing. And I pray that this evening, if there's anybody out there that doesn't know you, Lord, that they will respond even tonight to trust you as their Savior, to know that they can confess their sin to you, to call on your name for salvation, and that you will save them, that you will give them the Spirit, and you will teach them to know these things of the mind of Christ. We pray that you'll bless us as we continue our worship this evening. We thank you for bringing us together tonight. In your name we pray. Amen.